0: podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: Hello, welcome to United Hour. I'm your host, Imran, and today we've got a very special podcast with a very special guest. Um, He is the senior sports writer for The Times. I'd like to introduce you all to Matt Dickinson. Matt, welcome to United Hour. Thank you for inviting
0: me. Plenty to talk about, I think.
1: There's plenty to talk about of United at the moment. Um, Matt has just recently published a book, in fact, it's out today, I believe, um, entitled 1999, Manchester United, The Treble and All That. Uh, It's a fantastic book that we will get into into more detail in a moment. Um, But just to start, Matt, um, you, you were the one who broke the story about Sir Jim Ratcliffe being interested in potentially buying Man United or wanting to become involved in Man United in the future. Um, what do you do? You think sets this one apart? I mean, we've been there before as United fans, you know, people wanting to buy the club and then it never materializes and we're just stuck with the Glazers constantly. Do you, th- do you think there's anything about this one that sets it apart?
0: Well, I think it's different from, from yeah, the, the buyer's end in the sense of, you know, we, we know that he is a very rich man for starters. We know that he um, is definitely interested in sport, both. Professionally and personally, you know, Ineos have got involved in all sorts of sports, including football at Nice in, in the French League. They, you know, they're, they're not messing around there. They've spent a lot of money this summer to try and get into the Champions League. We know that he tried obviously, you know, left it too late to bid for Chelsea, but, you know, was came to that table. And we know he's a Man United fan who... He's approaching the way he has put it to me when we've talked before is that he's approaching seventy he's got billions uh in the bank basically and he you know he wants to use it to live life to the full and sport is one way of doing that so you know I think he's you know he also doesn't strike me as a sort of flaky character um you know he's <laughs> he hasn't built a petrochemicals business from scratch and become a billionaire without you know um being a fairly sort of serious player so for all those reasons, I think his interest is there, but at the same time, the the, the but, and there's a big but, is that we're dealing with the Glazers. And, yeah. you know, no one knows exactly what they want. No one knows exactly... You know, we've got all kinds of bits of information and rumour and speculation um, about their plans. We know that Old Trafford needs an absolute fortune spending on it, and they're not the type who are going to just say, well, well, we'll pay for that, are they? So there's a lot of sense that adds up. Um, there's six siblings and only two of them engage in a football team. So there's lots of reasons why it, it does seem that they're inviting some kind of injection of But whether that... Becomes a partnership with Ratcliffe, whether Ratcliffe can buy the club, I'm afraid I would have to say there's some massive ifs and buts still to be uh, addressed.
1: Yeah, there's one thing being interested in buying Man United, there's a whole other thing to actually be able to. Uh, We've seen the Glazers this week want to sell off minority shares, and that's looking like an American investment fund already in line for that. So even that is kind of closed off. from and from your perspective on the kind of inside tracking journalism circles, what impression of the like of the glazers do you get in terms of they're wanting this sticker? Do you, do you get much information from them at all? Is it is it it's, quite of a closed door compared to other clubs? Oh, it's
0: it's you know is the it's the most um, closed door in football almost. I mean, you know we 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 you know we pick around the, the the sort of edges of the glazers as much as we can, and you know there are two or three people who are sort of licensed to, to um, shall we say, speak on their behalf at, at times, but even that is sort of painful and comes out in a dribble and, you know, often is a question of sort of trying to read between the lines. I mean, I know in the last year since the Super League debacle that, the you know, Joel Glazer's come on a couple of Zoom calls, there's been talk of fan involvement and share scheme and stuff, but, you know, that's still to be proved to be more than platitudes. Um, you know, my, my approach to the Glazers as a journalist, it probably reflects a lot of the approach of the fans to the Glazers, which is, um, you know, I'll believe it when I see it and I'll sort of assume the worst um, otherwise because everything we've seen about the club, the way it's run, the priorities, you know, the way that the performance culture has been eroded year after year, the way Ed Woodward ran it, um, transfer strategy, you know, we could go on and on. um, Yeah, has left us, thinking that these are particularly uh, poor owners of a football club and they just happen to own the one of the most obviously celebrated and successful
1: in the history of football. Well, yeah, we talk about how it's run and I think nothing has been more apparent about the way United has run or lack of cohesion with it. its run with this summer. I am personally, as I'm a United fan, I've never known a summer like this um, in terms of just transfer rumours, Things happening here, there, and everywhere. Suddenly, so, I mean, uh, we've got a guy in the podcast called Nick. He lives and dies by the BBC. If it's on the BBC, it's accurate. And the BBC this year have actually put us in. We've been confirmed years with a lot of players that just are, are haven't happened. Have you have you ever seen a summer like this? Especially for a well, United, I, I think the
0: worst thing about it is is the fact that it should have been a reset summer. You know, you've got a new um, a TV exec, effectively Richard Arnold, who's come in after Woodward. You know, Wood, Woodward we know made a mess of things, but it, Richard Arnold also had a running start to this summer. You know, it wasn't like he arrived in the middle of it. We also, you know, and he's been at the club for ages. We knew that Eric Ten Hag, you know, he wasn't appointed midsummer. He, We knew he was coming, you know, with plenty of time to get a window sorted out. You know, there, there are so many reasons why it should have been a summer where everyone could say, ah, you know what, we've hit rock bottom. And this is, you know, this is, this is where it starts getting some credibility back. And instead, you know, it's been the opposite. I mean, obviously, Casemiro We can debate about, you know, I mean, he, he is obviously a you know, well-established player. But the fact is that even that, you know, you suddenly think, well, why is this suddenly appearing so late? Why is it it's a different profile to the other players we're talking about? And, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, Eric Ten, Ten Hag should have been arriving and being told, by the way, we have just done two, three years' work setting up these targets. We know the five centre-backs who are the best in Europe. You know, do you, if you want Koulibaly we can go and get him for X. If we want, a, you know, the 20-year-old version, we can get for Y. Instead, obviously, the sign Martinez because that's what he knew. That uh, you know, with and the, the Dutch league is different from the English league, and we're already seeing some of the the, the ramifications of that. So yeah, uh, I mean, in the short, it, it it should have been. Uh, a summer where there was a big reset different people doing it differently and instead we've just seen one problem after the other and uh, you know Ronaldo's another you know I mean basically the coach has got a real problem with him no one else will take him it's a mess and um, you know the, the club has to hope that that does not become a mess that hangs over the dressing room for months after months.
1: And for, well we'll see what happens with Ronaldo as the, the window ticks by but all this depressing current Man United yeah. is not what we're here to talk about. No, no, no. We are here to talk about possibly the greatest season of all time in English football. Certainly, as my sporting United of thirty-five years, my favourite season of all time, the nineteen ninety-nine season. Uh, Matt has written a, uh, written a wonderful book, uh, Man United: The Treble and all that. Uh, it's out now. It is genuinely a fantastic read. Um, Matt, what was the what was the inspiration for this book? I mean, obviously, we just had the twenty years. Couple of years ago, but what what made you want to go back and revisit this this season?
0: I think uh, to be honest, there's uh, there's a few things. I mean, one, I mean, you know, uh, obviously it remains the most uh, the simple fact remains the most successful season by an English football club ever. And you know, we've seen how close Liverpool and Man City seem to have got in the last couple of years. You know, there was obviously lots of talk of quadruples at one stage. You know, um, and yeah, they've fallen short, and that's underlined just how unbelievably hard it is to get to get a treble, Never mind a quadruple. Um, so you know, there is the uniqueness of the feat. There is the fact that as a reporter, every time you know I meet up um as a, a bald, older, gray and bloke, and we have reminiscences about you know the glory days, um, somehow the stories always end up back at Ferguson era back at this this, cha- this uh, campaign in particular, it's just where it, it's where it was the most fun to be had as a reporter. You're following these, you know, biggest team in the world with um, some of the most amazing games in the world and crucially some, I think, some of the most interesting characters that I've ever come across. The feat is one thing, the treble, but actually I think what makes, hopefully makes this book interesting and makes the story interesting is that we are talking about a dressing room that is full of, of absolutely mesmerising people. Roy Keane, I mean, to younger audience, obviously they see him now as this, uh, you know, feisty, fiery pundit. I mean, imagine seeing that in midfield every week um, and uh, the intensity of that. David Beckham becomes the most famous, you know, athlete on the planet. Gary Neville we see every week who has become, you know, all these guys. Um, Peter Schmeichel, not just an perhaps one of the, perhaps the world's greatest goalkeeper, but a huge, interesting character could go on. York and Cole become this amazing partnership. And it's not just a partnership of skills and talents, but of personalities. And so, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to be there at the time, to cover it, to be up closer then than we can get now. You know, in that time, we travelled with the team on planes, on European trips. We could be, you know, I've been lucky enough to do Gary Neville's autobiography. I did a book with Beckham. So there was a bit more of an intimacy as well. So all these things combined to make me just think, hang on a minute, this was the greatest season ever. It was the most fascinating season ever. It was the most dramatic season ever. It was the most amazing personalities. And, uh, you know, if there's not a book in that, then um, I'm in in the wrong job, basically.
1: Well, it's it's told wonderfully well um, through many, many chapters. we were talking just before we came on about how I enjoyed the shortness of these chapters. Um, each one, I think maximum, maybe five, six pages each chapter. And did that come about organically through the fact that there's just so many characters, there's so many stories to tell? Yeah,
0: it's a really good question. And it was, it was like a eureka moment to understand. I can't claim the credit for myself. I, I, I you know, I knew I wanted to go back there and see it. And I, also I knew what I didn't want to do is write some big stodgy, you know, this happened in september this happened in october you know it was cr- i wanted it to be chronological because that makes sense but i didn't want it to be just a sort of report of matches that everyone knows about i wanted it to feature these characters and lots of interesting quirks like one chapter um is about the kid alex notman who my,
1: can i just say as my favorite chapter in the book a person i've not thought about for 20 years and he's actually himself, like, well that name yeah
0: exactly so people you know a couple of mates have said oh you know what, what was the best bit expecting me to say well you know having an hour with David Beckham or you know getting the inside track from Teddy Sheringham but so for those who don't know Alex Notman was a, a very promising kid at United at the time and in the middle of of the trouble season it's the uh, the League Cup and he comes on uh, as a substitute so he's made his debut you know he is he's hit the big time in his eyes and uh he's playing in the treble season and the next day he comes into training and alex ferguson sits him down and says son you know you're on your way now you know there's a whole man united career waiting for you and uh as without spoiling too much surprise he never plays for the club again and and when we spoke he was a gas engineer living near norwich and you know, I, I sort of I didn't know any of that when I first started the story. It sort of slipped off my radar, and I, you know, I'm sure most United fans' radar. But I wanted to feature him because, a, it shows how thin the line is between you know, glory and ending up as a you know, with respect to gas engineer in Norwich, and b, it just also underlines, uh, I guess, how special the Skulls and the Neville's and. Giggs and Beckham are to have made it to have you know that that line is that thin and it takes not just talent but you know awful lot of character and luck and everything else to to suddenly find you've played 500 games for Man United so yeah so that I guess is one snapshot of where I thought if I do 99 chapters I can bring in a character like Alex Notman actually give him I think the the space and the respect he deserves um Whereas in another book, you know, a different format, you know, that could get reduced to a couple of paragraphs and almost feel lost in it. So, yeah, I'm really pleased you like the format. It, it, it say when, as soon as I realised it was a different way of doing it, instantly I was like, great, I, I, I love that. And I think it allows me to tell all these different uh, stories that otherwise might 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 sort of fall away.
1: Yeah, as a, as a United fan, I cannot, and a self-professed professed non book reader I can't recommend this book enough to fellow United fans and to football fans it just it's such an easy pick up and read and you'll end up reading five or six chapters before you know it I cannot recommend it enough but anyway going back you you mentioned obviously you talked to a lot of players um for this book um York, Sheringham, Jesper Bluntvist, Andy Cole, a whole range how how willing do you find them to talk about this season than say other topics when you've come across them in the past how how much fire inside them do you see about talking about the 99 season
0: yeah, well, I mean, they were all, I mean, um, yeah, uh, I mean, the ones I got hold of, obviously, were, were, I mean, for most of them, it's like, you know, basically, <laughs> do you mind sparing some time to talk about, you know, the greatest season of your life? And it's, you know, ha- ha- happy days. Wh- wh- why wouldn't I? But there are complications even with that. I mean, uh, Teddy Sheringham was one of the most, I mean, Teddy at the time, and um, as dealing as a journalist, could be quite aloof. And, you know, he... he yeah he wasn't the easiest to uh, to sort of get to get to and to get to know and um you know i think yeah you know, it's not just me saying that he he would say that himself that he 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 could be like that at the time but it's actually now going back and talking with 20 years perspective he would really opened up about actually it was hard for him you know everyone thinks ah oh, you won the treble you scored at the new camp those you know happy days and actually he said no it was that year was really tough um he said his United career was really tough. He didn't feel he fitted in the dressing room that well. You know, there was a class of 92 sort of gang. And then there was York and Cole. And he had a terrible relationship with Andy Cole that people know about. And what I didn't know about until we sat down and had never come out before was that he had this shocking relationship with Roy Keane as well. I mean, he, he, wasn't, he, was about to, he, he wasn't sure when to tell that story. And in the end, he just went, oh, you know sod it um uh you know there's enough water under the bridge and um yeah so i don't know if people have seen the extracts um that the times had, but basically him and basically they were in a minibus with a few of the, the lads and keen suddenly turned around and basically tried to fight him and um called him you know f off back to london your cockney and your ferrari and your penthouse and and it all kicked off and um keen never spoke to him again for three years as as teammates and uh you know, it's we, we can laugh about it now, but you imagine at the time, you know, you're in this dressing room, you know, um, and again, that's the the complex dynamics of that. I, I just found fascinating. Everyone must think or easily thinks, you know, they won the treble. They must have been this band of brothers. It must have been, you know, uh, this amazing team spirit. And it was just really interesting to me as a sports writer and studying greatness and what makes greatness. Actually, it's way more complicated than that. And And there was all this, you know, Roy Keane and Peter Schmeichel at times wanted to rip each other's heads off. But I guess that's the genius of Alex Ferguson was that all this stuff was going on, and yet he kept everyone on the straight and narrow. And I I I guess it takes a special leader and a special manager to have these big alpha, you know, players in a dressing room and you know, not just a few of them, to have, you know, 15 of them and to keep them, you know, basically to allow a certain amount of uh of um you know macho feistiness but somehow you know keep keep everyone's eyes on the prize basically
1: yeah I think the thing that comes across really well in the book is just the characters of the like the the, obviously there's obviously a lot of football covered in the book and we talk about the games but it's really the characters of these people and what made them the people they are we talk about how Andy Cole's a bit of an introvert how Roy Keane is Roy Keane everyone knows how Roy Keane how Gary Neville is a bit of a pupil how close those guys were it's fascinating insight into these people as characters um how like you I don't feel like these days you just get a a dressing room like that anymore it's such a different time almost um do you kind of miss it in a way (laughs) I do well I think you know I missed
0: the mention before I miss we miss the intimacy as a journalist I definitely do because you know I think it did I think they certainly as well had a sort of boldness that that you know in dealings with with us the media they they you know used to have real old ding-dongs I mean I think I mentioned you know in the book I think I tell a story of once I did an interview we were going out to the Bristol Dortmund 97 um, uh, semi-final the first leg and I did an interview at the airport with Peach Michael when I I asked him you know how do you think this team would get on against the 68 team and he said oh we'd we'd probably beat them 10-0 because you know you see how fast they run and how fast we run and it, I got his point and he put it in context but obviously he sticked that in the headline and it, it didn't look so clever so anyway and he got injured that that for that game United obviously lost 1-0 in Germany didn't make it to the final and next thing I know I've got a 6-foot-4 Danish goalie running at me on the way back screaming saying you know you stitched me up you X, Y, Z and uh, we had a you know we had a right old shall we say ding-dong about it but that's that's what I, that's what we loved as journalists. That there was that relationship, and you know, it was Peter Schmeichel. We and you know, we got over it, and you know, it um, life 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 moved on. But I, I loved the fact that there was that you know um close up and personal. They knew who we were, Um and you know, if you wrote something that someone didn't like, you would hear about it quite quite soon. Especially obviously where Alex Ferguson was in, was oh. was. So I don't want to be, you know, probably in the danger of saying, you know, sounding too like, oh, they were the good old days. But, I, you know, yeah, there's now to be a football reporter now is still an amazing job. But I do think, you know, now you tend to be dealing much more with agents or representatives or mm-hmm. the brother of the player, you know, the mum or the dad rather than the player themselves. That's just shows how the media has changed, how the size of football fame and celebrity has changed as well
1: when we talk about characters there is no I feel bigger character in this team than Roy Keane and Roy Keane's an interesting one in this book because I mean to to give a bit of the book away that they're often split it's split into chapters and then often players will come up chapters and the players take up chapters more towards the beginning but Roy Keane he's there throughout He's always there. He's a menace. He's always there, and then he gets his he gets his call at the end, obviously when the has come into play. But I probably would say Roy probably mentioned probably the second most after Fergie. Maybe do you feel like his his footprints are all over this season and all of this book? He is there a bigger character than Roy Keane and the stuff that he did for this season is is incredible.
0: No, I think it's it's interesting you spotted that because I, I was very conscious of it because I started off and the book again without yeah you know, well that's, that's, I don't think it's spoiling anything. The, the book is actually bookended by Beckham um effectively because he gets the sending off in the 98 uh uh world cup obviously and he's coming back off that and he's this national scapegoat and um and it finishes not just with the new camp but posh and beck's the wedding um you know which sort of tells a bit of a circle of sort of redemption for for him but and i you know when i first started the project i wondered if it was beckham was going to be almost the you know the sort of the main character basically the sort of you know hero the sort of biggest hero of the story but at, the more I did it the more keen 100% emerged as absolutely the sort of thread through the book the same way he is through that team um I think you know it was I, I knew obviously had been injured the season before but it was only coming to the research that and speaking to um the physio at United at the time that I realized just how so yes, it was a different, totally different Roy Keane that comes back. You know, he's uh, you know, he, he was just insanely competitive. He was determined to absolutely make the best of of a, almost like a second chance after serious injury. And, you know, he um you know, the char- I describe a tackle he does in the in the the charity shield coming back where he just throws himself at the air, you know, he's coming back from a crucial knee. Uh, ligament, you know, most players would be sort of feeling their way back, and he's like, "No way, I'm just, you know, I'm I'm coming at you, and I'm gonna get I'm gonna get my trophies back, basically." And uh, he, I, I think it's still one of the great underrated seasons. You know, he next the following year he wins um, PFA and Football Writers Players of the Year. It's it's nuts to me that he didn't um, win it that year. When I spoke to the players, I said, "Who was your Who would have been your vote?" And they said, "Roy Keane by a mile." You know, I think Teddy Sheringham, even Teddy Sheringham, who obviously fell out with with Roy, said, if, you know, if he wasn't there for a training session, it was less intense. This, you know, it wasn't just matches. Every day, Roy Keane kept this team on their on their toes to, you know, a sort of uh, you know in, insane level. And and I think you know he was at his peak physically. He was more determined than ever, and he was, you know, he was absolutely the engine of of the treble it doesn't it doesn't happen without him you know and that's even without just sort of one-off games like Turin obviously away when you know it definitely doesn't happen without
1: him no um but not as good as David Ginola we have to we have to concede (laughs) well yeah well
0: I'd say I I think I try and get my excuse so yeah for people who don't know uh, David David Ginola wins the uh football of the year that that year which is still a sort of you know embarrassment for for, for, for the organisations that um, put him up there. I mean, he, uh, you know, he had a couple of good few... I mean, he was a, a wonderful player to watch, but... He um, hit farm at the right time. Yes, but Fergie couldn't stand him because he was a diver and called him, called him such. Um, and also there was the fact that the voting was basically before any of the trophies had been sorted. So it was sort of skewed by that. And actually this, because of it, the system changed to push the voting back as late as possible. But yeah, I mean... You know, you would have had any sensible vote by the end of May you would have had, you know, Keane, York, and Stam and Beckham ahead of Ginla without mm. any without any question.
1: So yeah, Beckham is another one uh, throughout the book. Again, you start with him, you finish with him. It's um, it's quite like we go back now and think about the vitriol that he had, and it is quite staggering actually. If you if you weren't alive at the time, if you're very young and you weren't there, it, it's beyond what you probably could imagine. I mean. If Jack Grealish, for instance, I mean I'm picking Jack Grealish because he's sort of a similar character. If he got sent off in a, a World Cup semi-quarter final in Qatar, could you even see it being half of what Beckham got?
0: No, I mean I think it was it is interesting to sort of look back obviously as a journalist and look back on just think, well, yeah, wow, what what you know, what what was it that was that made it so I mean I think one thing is this is pre-social media, you know, it's before the internet, and I think newspapers had there was more power basically in, in, in the, the mainstream newspaper industry. And I think that dictated and, well, tried to reflect and dictate a public mood at the same time. So if the front page of a, of a newspaper, particularly obviously a, a sort of mass market um, you know, tabloid paper, felt like it was sort of, you know it was absolutely the the, the public opinion. So when the mirror do a big headline and a, is it ten ten heroic lines, one stupid boy, you know I mean that that the power of that was just immense. and it fueled this, yeah, as you say I mean, utter vitriol. I mean, you know we had absolute people camp outside the the Beckham family house, the parents' house, the grandparents' house. Um, it was, you know, dartboards with, I mean, I interviewed Piers Morgan for the book. And when you have Piers Morgan, um, saying, I think we went too far, then, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, this is, this is a guy who's like, you know, anti-cancel culture, you know, freedom of speech, everything goes, you know, uh, opinion on everything. Um, but, but yeah, even he said, you know what, I, I look back and just think, yeah, we went over the top. So that, that, that just shows you. And it was, there was a lot of questions, serious questions time could he come back to, could he even play in England? would he just flee straight away would he was it going to be unbearable um, and which just shows you you know the level of scorn that was you know I mean in some ways you know everyone has a voice on Twitter um but you can you know you, you can turn it off ignore it but at the time it felt like Beckham was literally physically being hounded he was being chased everywhere he went mm.
1: and it um, just go again shows the mental the mental the mental strength that he has in the character of everyone not just him but everyone in the squad again you're touching it a lot the mental strength that they all have it's it's quite something and then another big character in the book well not a big character in the book necessarily but another who I can enjoy when he ever chips in is Dwight York just seems like the most cheerful <laughs> lovely man alive yeah uh, no and, and such a such a
0: contrast to the rest of them I mean I think that's that was again I mean Ferguson and I think, you know, he, he, he admits himself that he was a bit lucky with this. Um, you know, Dwight York was on his radar. He admired him as a player. He, he thought, yeah, this there was this really versatile forward. He could play on the wing. He could play as a 10. He could play as a nine, you know, technical and physical. But, you know, he chased other targets. I mean, if Patrick Clive had said, I'm coming, then Dwight York probably never, never ends up there. Or, you know... What combination of forward they chase after Patrick Cliver, bid for Patrick Cliver, um, who was at AC Milan, have a bid accepted, and who knows how his? You know, it's one of those sliding doors moments of how history could have could have been different. But Cliver goes off to Barcelona instead, um, wins one league in four years, which I'm sure gives you know United fans and Fergus, Fergie a chuckle. Um, but and Dwight York comes right on the deadline, um, and. Uh, You've got this dressing room that's just full of, of as we've talked about these, you know, sort of insanely intense characters. And Dwight York turns up and starts doing keepy uppy, telling jokes, high fives, um, saying right, who's you know who's coming, who's coming off to the bar. And I think I say, I think I say in the book, it's like introducing a sort of Hawaiian shirt and a cocktail bar into Salford. I mean, that's that was the cultural sort of difference that Dwight York had in terms of his, his just sort of you know this is fun. You know, this isn't meant to be pressure. This is, he says like, you know, one minute I'm playing for Aston Villa and now I'm joining Man United and I've got Beckham and Giggs hitting crosses in. I mean, what's not to like? And it's not only the impact he had with that confidence because, you know, people will know that, you know, there's a lot of players, especially strikers who have basically died a death at United because of the pressure and expectation Um, And Andy Cole had struggled at times, you know, he scored goals, he'd won trophies, he'd had a respectable time at United, but I don't think he'd really fired. And it was only when Dwight Yor turns up and basically says, mate, you know, uh, know, I'm here, I'm here to play alongside you, I'm here to bring out the best in you, that he actually relaxed. And suddenly there was this incredible double act, which... um, you know I mean they scored yeah I think I talk in the book. Well I want to say yeah.
1: thank I want to say thank you because you have a chapter fully dedicated to my favorite goal in Manchester United history, which is the Andy Cole goal, at the Camp New, which is just beautiful. It's, it's, it, I as you describe it, it is like art being played yeah, out What's your favorite your favorite United goal Our favorite ever. United goal? Um, wow, definitely. yeah, probably. I mean, yeah. it might change on a different day, but reading that, <laughs> I was like, yes, yeah, back to number one again. But it's, it is just a, a fabulous goal. And you even said um, Ollie used it when he was coaching. They make yeah, it yeah. to, to see yeah, if they could have it's... that chemistry. So it's, it's just a fantastic goal.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, there's a, I think, like all the best um, football, it is it is both intricate and simple. You know, there's something, I mean, the, you know, the, the sort of the one, two, we, we all learn that at, you know, age, age sort of eight years old on the part. But to be able to do it, with the speed and the accuracy and the simplicity that they do just to go one, two, one, two, to slice through a defense in Barcelona in the new camp, in another humdinger of a of a cup tie. And again, it's the way Andy Cole, who at times had looked, you know, anxious and and um, you know snatching shots and stuff, the way he just finishes like this is fun. Yeah, you know, even Andy Cole is now looking like I'm here to enjoy myself to score goals. Um yeah, I mean, again, just fascinating to see the personalities and how they gelled like that.
1: That's just one – obviously, there's a lot of the book is de- dedicated to the football, and what I found quite exciting or interesting for me was when you were describing the football, it would all just – I mean, the 99 season, I watched it a load when I was a kid, and then – but, you yeah, know, I, mean, I haven't watched the season highlights of that for a long time, but then it all comes flooding back when you're describing it. Did you find out when you were going back to research it, when you were looking at the footage, that it all just came flooding back as well, and all these things, all these, these memories, and you're like, oh, I remember this goal, and
0: – well, I, is that, I mean, I'd I'd I, you know, I mean, shame on me that I'd actually forgotten. I mean, I went back and obviously looking at my own sort of journey through and um, you know, the, the Liverpool uh, FA Cup game comeback. I mean, I'd I'd you know, it was really interesting me to go and read back my own report from doing it and I'd just forgotten how deafening that, that that day was because it was a cup tie and that meant that Liverpool had more allocation of fans. I think they had, you know, huge um uh, I think it might have been 8,000, eight, 10,000. It would thousand. be eight thousand behind the the yeah. side, yeah. Yeah, and and to, so just reading back to remember that what you know, because we tend to think, you know, chewing away, we tend to think um the Villa Park with a replay, you know, we tend to think of the new camp games or whatever. But uh, yeah, just to read back and just think, wow, that game in itself was like epic and the noise was deafening and the tension became excruciating. Um, so, yeah, I, I, and I, some of the games, I mean, obviously I watched back all the goals and I watched back plenty of highlights, but, yeah, three or four games, I managed to obviously go back and, and literally watch, you know, sometimes you try and watch back an old game and think, mm, is this going to look a bit tame and a bit dull? But actually, you know, to watch Villa Park back again, to watch obviously the final back again, to watch, you know, um, watch Turin. I mean, I have to say the Turin... The first half of Turin away, you know, I mean, I was like, you know, <laughs> getting the hairs on it. You know, I was, you, you suddenly find yourself wrapped up in it again, thinking, are they going to do it? Are they going to do it? It's it's, yeah. they're, it's, And when a game stands the test of time like that, that you can watch it back again and be gripped more than 20 years later, then, you know, you know, you've been at something very special.
1: I mean, it's incredible, actually, if you think about it. Not many teams will ever come back from one goal down with 88 minutes to go once every 10 years and we, we did it twice in the season. Or the Liverpool game will forever be my shame because after that first goal went in, we equalized. My dad was like, right, we've got to go. Cause I think we have to joke. go somewhere. And I was too young to say no. So <laughs> we ended up seeing the highlight the, the second goal in the concourse just on the TV. And I oh, forget, wow. didn't forgive my dad for that one for a while. But um but yeah, um, so we're talking about the games and a couple of big games stick out. So we obviously have the FA Cup semi-final, which for a lot of people's money and mine is one of the greatest games of English football, certainly in the modern era, certainly in my time following football. Um, I assume that's one of the ones you did go and watch nine minutes of because, one, what a great excuse to go and watch nine minutes of that game. Oh well, um, well, well, yeah, one hundred twenty was it? Yes, one hundred twenty. Yeah, 120, sorry. Yeah. And I think yeah. I mentioned that.
0: You know, even Tony Adams. So you know, I want again. We talked about bringing in the d- different chapters, different characters. That spoke to Tony Adams for that one because I just wanted a different perspective on on it. And yeah, he he talks about you know he goes um goes after the game to see his sister and you know obviously he's just lost you know their hopes of a double have just gone up in smoke he's absolutely gutted and the first thing his sister says is basically what an amazing game you know it wasn't like sorry you lost or you know the referee was a git or whatever it's just like wow what a, what a night and that just shows you you know even even the sort of vanquished team were just thinking that I think there's a times on a pitch where you know sports people suddenly know they know they're involved in something that's beyond the ordinary and that was a night when you know i mean it was just electric from start i mean it was, i think it's, it felt like you know the uh, the heavyweight championship of the world didn't it it was like it wasn't just a there wasn't just an fa cup tie this was like who is the best team out there and you know it's going to be a 12 round slugfest to find out basically
1: yeah, we missed the days of the the Man United Arsenal rivalry. It was very intense back then, as you've detailed in the book. Um, is that your favourite Premier League rivalry? Do you think? Well, I think it is because the, the you
0: know I think the the managerial rivalry was so fascinating. You know, Fergie and Wenger was not just professional; that was personal as well. Um, you know that became, and, and that right at the start of it, you know, it was just blowing up then, and and uh, and I think the way that the there was a physicality to the, you know, I think the combination of styles made for a brilliant rivalry on the pitch as well. The fact that, you know, and um, Gary Neville was basically, he he was very explicit that um, he thinks that the 98 going into 99 Arsenal team was the hardest they faced because, you know, they were, they were so tough and powerful and physical as well. Obviously Vieira and Petit coming in, they didn't yet, you know, they had more speed in, uh, in overmars and and i think he found that basically the the later teams you could they could bully a bit you know and gary <laughs> gary in particular was one of those who who set about that bullying but i think they have you know that 98 to sort of 99 time and you know it was the the league title was decided by a you know a fraction basically so i think for all sorts of reasons you know and I, you know basically you uh, you got to sort of believe what these players tell you and they tell you that that was that rivalry at its most intense and at its most ferocious and there was you know so little to separate uh, you know so little to separate the teams i mean and arsenal still feel like you know could have they could have done back-to-back doubles you know they were a fraction away
1: mm. i would say it's worth picking up the book for all these different viewpoints of our players i said like arsenal players later by munich but their viewpoint on how these games went and just i mean Paul Scholes touched on his um, his performances and in his typical Scholes delf- uh, self deprecating way. Um, obviously, another big game. Then we go on to the Turing game, as you said, like incredible stuff. Um, what was that like? Um, one being there at the time, but like going back there, did it bring it all, again, just bring it all back? I'm basically just here to talk about the good times. That's all. (laughs) Yeah, well,
0: understand. I mean, it was it was just great fun to go back. I mean, I remember, I've got, I mean, I've got mixed memories of uh, Turin because the stadium, um, any fan will know who went there. I mean, the stadium was, was managed to be both quite new and an absolute shambles, basically. (laughs) It was um, Stadio dell'Alpi. It was, it had only been built in the 90, for the 1990 World Cup and was already sort of falling apart you know nine years later and uh it was so basically you know i mean the world's smallest violin is going to come out for this but there the, were basically the technology didn't work there either and this is again pre-wi-fi and pre you know so i had the world's worst night trying to um get my cop file yeah you know, write my copy and file it and stuff so this absolute epic of a match is going on and i'm basically <laughs> punching my lap you know if it was even called a laptop then um but it was just, uh, I think, say that half, the first half in particular, to go about and watch it is like, you know, it's, you know, obviously famously um, United go 2-0 down. And I think I was writing a book at that stage. we, are, I've literally started typing into my, you know, another, another European campaign over. I think I turned to my colleague at the time and just said, oh, well, that's that. You know, that's that then. Um, and you know we're talking as we're talking to you're know, talking Juventus away Juventus have been to three consecutive European Cup finals we're talking mm. Zidane and Champ and Davids and you know and Conte who was just as mad on the pitch then as um he's now he's now on the sidelines um managing Tottenham um but yeah they were an absolute top team and the idea that anyone could come back from 2-0 down after 20 minutes was pretty much unthinkable but mm. United did it and uh you know they they by half time they were not just back in the game, but dominant and flying and uh it was just um you know there's a picture of uh Gary always talks of Neville always talks about a picture of him and Beckham at the end of that game the the two of them are sort of arm in arm I think they might be holding their badges and stuff, and it, he says that's possibly his favorite picture ever from football just because this was the night when they just took that next step, and I think as they walked off that, they just knew. This is, you know, I think it had happened at the Villa Park. And then to do that and then lurch straight onto Turin, I just think they knew this is, there's something in the air here. There is something that is going on and um, we've got to make the most of it.
1: Well, speaking of giant rewrites, is there a bigger rewrite in the history <laughs> of sport than the 1999 Champions League final? Uh, n- never has
0: been, never will be. Um, so those, you know, t- without being too technical. So if people don't know, I mean, and it's still the, the ca- this case now. Even with you know, technology has not changed the fact that, you know, as a reporter, if you are covering a night match, you are, you have to have a report for the first edition of the newspapers over at the whistle, not ten minutes after. It's got to be at the whistle. So that basically means that you you are writing from the first minute. You know, you you have a chunk. Um, done by half time and you during the second half you're watching the game, that's why you need to touch type because you're sort of watching the game while rattling away so after 89 minutes in the new Camp I have sent already sent a thousand words on how Fergie sort of basically screwed up the tactics put gigs on the right, what was he thinking you know um, had he picked the wrong team, Blanquist has had, an, um, had a nightmare, he's not been in good form, his confidence was gone and you know the damp squib so yeah we've all and i'm not the only yeah we've all sent our stuff um after ni- after 89 90 minutes and then teddy sharing equalizes and it's like oh well wow amazing it's it's one all. we're gonna have extra time we've got another 30 minutes to sort of you know get our heads straight and get our get our match report sorted out and of course bang um, the most famous Man United goal in history, one of the most famous goals ever in history, flies in off uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's boot. And at, at that point, you know, is the greatest noise you've ever heard. Um, but that which would have drowned out the screams in the press box of, oh my God, I've got about uh, 30 seconds to describe the
1: most amazing football story in, uh, in history. I can't. I can't imagine the contrast between I am witnessing football history with. I need to do my job.
0: <laughs> well, it is. I mean, it's sort of like, and there is that sort of. There's nowhere else I want to be on earth than this, and I'm lucky to be doing this job. And at the same time, you know, I am absolutely gripped with panic. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 basically, you know, I think the turnaround came in 102 seconds, and we've got less time than that to sort of try and describe it. So. I have to say yeah, I mean I made a complete which is sort of partly again why I went to write the book I, 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 I'm not particularly proud of my sort of muddled attempt to put it right I have to say reading back some of my colleagues yeah, they did a they did a much better job on the night but it was you were just full of adrenaline I mean it, you know it, you couldn't be in that stadium and not be full of adrenaline but as a reporter yeah you suddenly had this challenge of like how how am I going to put this into words I can, I can barely believe what I've seen never mind you know explain it very well so um yeah you sort of hope that you hope to use that adrenaline to to find the words to describe um uh i mean i think actually the germ i spoke to the german commentator and i think you know um he's he actually said he stopped talking on german uh tv because he said that i think he said you know how, how do you describe the indescribable it was
1: like there was there was nothing to be said it was just shock and awe basically well, I wouldn't to worry too much about your article. It's not like um, it's not like <laughs> yeah, the, no. it's, it's not like thirteen-year-old boys were going out to buy every single paper the day after, and then saving them for the rest of their life.
0: that, that, well, that, that did not happen. It's, don't worry. It's, it's chi- and it's uh, it's famously chip paper uh, within twenty-four hours. But no, it was. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I, there there is one hundred percent nowhere else you want. You know. I mean, that's one of those nights where, you know, say we're still talking about it now, and and I'm still writing a book about it now, and and it's it's. I have to say, I watched that back for the book. I must have watched that back a hundred times. Those those three minutes, and I've got teenage sons now, and I, you know, made made them sit down and watch them. To be fair, they were just like proper goosebumps. You know, even even just watching that back now on any day, I think it's impossible to watch it without having goosebumps because it's it is such a you know not to win any game like that would you know is mad to win the champions league final that clinches the treble that ends all those years of striving because that's the other thing people you know i hope it comes over in the book people have to realize just how how much had gone into trying and failing to get this european crown back you know it had been years of 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 failure and and mm. and you know um i'm wondering if it's ever going to be done so you know, there's so so much emotion and um, was was invested in this.
1: Yeah, well, I've, I've said the biggest character for last, and that is Sir Alex Ferguson, of course. Um, I mean, the book actually starts with, and I didn't know this, um, and I won't give too much work it's in the book, but a, a very frank conversation from him and our chairman at the time, Martin Edwards, um, about Fergie's commitment to the club, and I didn't even know that was a thing. So, but then you. Throughout the book, you just see like what an impact he has on every single player, on every single facet of Man United, um, and then obviously to get this crown of glory, will there be an ever ever be another like Sir Alex Ferguson? I, I don't
0: think there there will be because I don't think it's almost I don't think it's actually possible for there to be another Alex Ferguson. The way he ran a club from top to bottom is just it doesn't happen now. I mean, you, you know, we we talk about uh, started off obviously the conversation about Un- where United are now and. You know that that the any club now, you know, you can have a big manager who's a, a big character, and and you know his his presence is felt everywhere in a club. I'm sure at Liverpool, Jurgen Klopp is, you know, his presence dominates that club. But he wouldn't expect to run, you know, every single department the way you know they have their own recruitment department that is, you know, got a huge team itself now. That's and and it wasn't li- it wasn't like that then. You know, Ferg- Alex Ferguson knew everything and everyone who was inside that club he you know he he was in at seven o'clock every morning on top of it I mean I talk about this was the old cliff train this was the last year at the cliff training ground which you go back to now and you can't believe (laughs) that the greatest team ever came from it you know but that was fascinating itself because it was this tiny crammed cramped training ground and that meant everyone knew everyone else's business and you can be sure that Alex Ferguson knew everyone else's business there as well and he he was um, just the most, the most uh, well, uh, and I hope again this comes through tactically. These were quite basic times. This was not you know, Pep Guardiola football, where he is, you know, intricately moving someone three yards and talking about, you know, right, we switch from, you know, four two three one to two three five. You know, and, you know, the, there was not that choreography now. that... Ferguson was not some, you know, guy who reinvented tactics. Above all, he was a psychologist and a motivator. Um, but he did that in a way that is, I think, untouched will perhaps never be touched. He was a genius at it. He knew how to put fire in the bellies, he knew how to smell when a player's mood wasn't quite right or when their confidence wasn't right, quite right. It doesn't mean say he didn't know footballers and understand it. You know, he knew when, okay, right, we need Nicky Butt for this game not Paul Scholes or we need Teddy Sheringham for this one not you know Dwight York whatever you know he was smart but I think his ability to tap into people was very very special and that's what kept him I mean I remember Roy Keane I mean obviously him and Roy Keane ended up having a big dust up but I remember Roy Keane summing it up and saying you know Alex Ferguson knew what to say every day for 25 years at Man United whether that was a bollocking because he felt the mood has got too complacent or whether it was a bit of empathy because he could see someone was having a hard time or whether it was you know giving someone a few days off because he could just see that they were frazzled to to, to understand instinctively what to do and what to say you know all the time you know I'm not saying he never got it wrong but it's a very special quality of people skills to have and uh, i think that that was what distinguished him. Mm.
1: And uh, obviously just the greatest uh, achievement in this club's history, um, in English football history, we said the treble. Uh, will we see it again, do you think?
0: Well, I mean, it's almost a surprise we haven't. I mean, obviously, as I say, City, you know, City two seasons ago looked absolutely well set for the quadruple. Um, and then obviously they they lose an FA Cup semi-final and ultimately the Champions League final as well. Liverpool last season, you know, I mean, basically, when City were losing on the final day of the league season, I was actually thinking, "Oh my God, am I going to have to rewrite this book?" Um, to take out words like "unprecedented" and "historic." Um, I have to say, yeah, when they were City were two 0 down and to Aston Villa, I was thinking, um, "Yeah, this could be the yeah the biggest rewrite since since 1999." <laughs> basically, um, so uh, you know, I think this, you know, we are in an age of super clubs now, where you know there is this huge wealth which can hoover up talent. And I think partly because of that, where it's a surprise. I mean, I guess the one difference between England and other leagues is that we do have a very competitive league. So even if a city is flying high, there is a Liverpool chasing them down, or vice versa. Mm -hmm. Um, So on the what, you know? But yeah, I mean, clubs keep getting close and falling tantalizingly short, and um, I think underlines how just underlines how special the achievement was, and and you know. United would it would see at the pants so many games, and yeah, the ability to make those fine margins work for them again comes back to the partly the skill, but as much the character
1: of a very special group of players. Mm, I mean, you put it the stats, there's a bunch of stats at the back of the book, which I quite like, and you can see all the the results and times and all the things. But the fact that United didn't lose a single game after the Middlesbrough defeat in December, the first and the only team still in England to have not lost a single game in any competition at the back end of season, it's very impressive. Um, and that's why this team, for me, obviously, one of the greatest teams ever, um, there was obviously debates and stuff, but this is a United podcast, so we're not going to get into those debates. This <laughs> is the greatest team ever. Um, one other thing I just wanted to ask you about is so throughout the book as well, which I quite like as a quite little uh, break from the football is just other things that are going on around the time, especially in nineties, like um, whether that be new labor or um cool britannia these things and how important was it for you to like include those sort of things and to capture the 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 era, if you will
0: yeah really important i mean basically you know i was you know um brought up in the south and then i got the job um in the mid-90s doing the manchester beat and i moved moved up i didn't know manchester really at all and i i, I mean i fell in love with the place and i i got swept along with it was the coolest you know i think all right it's i, I can't think there was a cooler place to to live I mean, I know, obviously, the whole Manchester thing had started, you know, before then. But, you know, I felt like I just arrived in this place that was, you know, erupting on so many levels. The, you know, the music was cooler. The football team was, you know, the biggest and best. The fast, It was fashionable. It was, you know, um, I loved it. I'd say I absolutely fell for the place. And, and so I wanted to capture that. I wanted to cap- the, capture the spirit of Manchester itself and the city and the vibrancy of it. I wanted to, you know, I think they were fascinating times. um, As you mentioned, Britpop and so on, there was a a different air at the time. And and it was amazing to look back and just, as you mentioned, New Labour. Alex Ferguson was massively entwined with New Labour. So, you know, it, it was also a time when football in the 90s had totally changed profile. You know, it'd gone from, you know, the 80s and hooliganism and the horrors of Heisel and horrors of Hillsborough to you know this sort of new premier league you know um yeah it just took a different place in society it suddenly became you know mainstream and popular and, and the whole boom was taken off and united were driving that boom that's the other thing you know united united were just way ahead of every other club in every aspect you know in terms of the, the profile and the scale and the popularity and I, I think there's a mini chapter about they were so popular that that spawned abu you know mm-hmm. anyone but united so i just wanted to yeah bring all of it together you know i was there lucky enough to be at um main road watching oasis that's like felt like a sort of moment of the 90s you know um and so yeah i wanted to bring all that in because as i reflected on the story that was part of the joy of it all as well that this manchester had felt like to me had the best of everything you know had the best music had the best football team had the best nightclubs you know why um again that's i I feel like i was you know doubly privileged to um to have all that as well
1: well matt thanks for joining congratulations on the book it's a great read i can't recommend it enough to everyone as well as all the anecdotes we've talked about there's loads more there's about the b sky b takeover you get behind the scenes um anecdotes from various players who you don't even think about there's stuff on david ellery if you're really a bigger david ellery fan there's some something for you there honestly it is a fantastic um read about one of the greatest seasons of football history and as a as a united podcast for any man united fan i cannot recommend it enough it's out now and you can get it from all your good look uh, book places amazon wherever get it now um it's a really great read you won't regret it um congratulations matt and uh thanks so much for joining us
0: No, well, thank you. I really appreciate the invite. And yeah, I just hope um, I hope I've just conveyed the fun of writing it and the fun of covering it and the fun of looking back on it because they were just they were great times, very special times. And uh, yeah, if that's if that sort of joy has come through and that's how it felt for the players looking back as well. So no, I appreciate um, it's been a pleasure
1: to talk. Yeah, well, listen, it's been such a joy that I've not been um, put off by the fact that England have just tumbled wickets during this entire <laughs> conversation. So, uh, it's been great. Thanks, Matt. Cheers. Yeah, a huge thank you to Matt there for joining us on the pod. If you want to give him a follow, you can follow him at Dickinson Times and Twitter. That's at Dickinson at Times on Twitter. And yeah, his book is out now, available in all good and bad bookshops. Um, It's a great read, like I said, on the pod. And yeah, just seek it out. It's a really, really good uh, read about one of the best periods of United's history. Um, Before we go, just want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Manscaped, as always. That's manscaped.com your go-to place for all the below and above waist grooming needs they now have a face razor as well as the razor for downstairs so they've got everything you could possibly need for male grooming and if you go there and give the quote united hour 20 you can get free shipping and 20 percent off your order that's united hour 20 for free shipping and 20 percent off that's manscaped.com for all your needs. And that's it for the pod. Make sure you join us next week after the Liverpool game, we'll be talking about that game and what looks like the impending arrival of Casemiro. Uh, no spoilers for what I think. You'll have to find out that on the next pod. Um, but, yeah, until then, cheers, everybody. United Hour is part of the Sports Social Network, edited by Imran laher And our theme song is by Ancient Feelings. To get in touch, please follow us on Twitter, United underscore Hour, or email us at unitedhour at gmail.com.
0: Sports Social Podcast Network.